So today we are in Luke chapter 18 in our series called This is the Way as we've been following the entire life of Jesus in the book of Luke. So you'll remember, because I remind you every week, since chapter 9, we're in 18, since chapter 9, everything we have watched Jesus do, everything we have listened to Jesus teach and hear him say has been in the context of a massive, very intentional road trip that Jesus is on to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem to do something very important in bringing the kingdom of God. That's what he's here for. That's the language he uses. That's the language Luke uses. He is bringing the kingdom of God. So the Jews, remember, have been waiting for the kingdom of God for hundreds of years. They have been waiting for this moment. They've been waiting for God to come back. The problem was that what they were waiting for, what they were picturing, the kingdom that they were imagining that they were waiting for was off. It was incorrect. They were looking for a replica, uh, modernized by 400 years. They were looking for a replica, longer than that actually, of the kingdom of Israel under King David in all of its glory. They wanted it to be this earthly kingdom that that's what they thought was going to happen. They were going to kick the Romans, those Gentiles out of Jerusalem and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So since chapter nine, really the whole book, but especially since chapter nine, right here to 18, Jesus has been spending the lion's share of his time explaining Back and forth between the Pharisees and the disciples. The Pharisees and the disciples, I noticed. He just kept going back and forth and and using these conversations to explain that the kingdom of God is not like that. And you don't have to be disappointed. It's better. It's better than that. But they didn't understand. Now, you and I know, as we read what he's going to Jerusalem to do. They think one thing, you and I know, he's going there to die. He's going there to suffer. He's going there to die and be resurrected a few days later. You and I know that, and you can know Jesus knows that. So as we read, even they don't understand, we understand that Jesus is teaching with an increasing intensity. We're in chapter 18. It's been since chapter 9. It's next week that he arrives in Jerusalem. Chapter 19, this is it. We, are, we have built up to this moment. So we are listening to the last little sets of teachings and recordings of his life from Luke before he gets there. And everything that, that God has ordained to happen takes over the script. And so let's listen to this chapter with the same intensity that surely Jesus was teaching with. So he begins this chapter with two parables. And I think this is funny because Luke like takes no chances. Normally in all the gospels, you hear the parable of Jesus and it's kind of up to you to kind of figure out what it means. Luke leaves nothing to chance on these two parables. He preloads us, the the readers, with here's what it means. Here's what he's teaching with the parable I'm about to tell you. I think that's kind of funny. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Okay, so there we've got the application. All right, here's the parable that teaches that application. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. 
But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this woman, this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. All right. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And then he adds this. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus in this story, we can tell by what he says last, we can know he is exalting faith. He is exalting the quality of faith in God. And more specifically, he is describing a faith that does not quit, that is steadfast, that is stable, that is not easily sent away because of circumstances. Something that I really got as I studied this parable is that God wants to be believed. He wants that from you. He's jealous for that. He wants to be believed. He wants to be believed in. He wants to be relied upon as if he's reliable because he knows he is. And he wants people, no matter what circumstance they're in, his people, to demonstrate that to the world by relying on him regardless of the circumstances we are in. So this is about faith. This widow now tells in the story, she really drew the short straw down at the courthouse, okay? She, when she, her case got on the docket, she got this judge that does not, what it says it does, he doesn't fear God. That basically means he has no moral center. He also is no respecter of persons. So even if she could, you know, get other people in power, maybe to put pressure or, you know, get, get, a, get a little movement going and pickets outside from people in the town to get this guy to do, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what other people think. And not only that, he's a judge. Presumably, judges are supposed to all be about justice, but Jesus tells us he is unjust judge. No moral center, doesn't care about justice, doesn't care about anyone. And on top of that, in this story, the character that Jesus puts in there socially is a widow who is about as low on the social power totem pole as you could have in first century. Okay? She has no clout. There's nothing, no skin off this judge's back if he disappoints her, doesn't do what he's supposed to do. That's the scenario we're in. And so, so in any other instance, in this story, because this would have been a familiar scene to everyone listening to the story. Yep, we know, how that, we know how that works. That's real. That happens. They'd quit. They'd go home. They'd hang it up. Except for one thing. In this story, she has this ridiculous persistence. She has this ridiculous persistence. And she, in the end, even in these difficult circumstances, she gets, because of her persistence, her persistence is honored. And she gets vindication. So, What's God doing here? Is he, is he saying that we should nag him until we get what we want? That just, that's what it feels like when you read it. Just from our vantage point, that's what it seems like. But he's not. What he's doing is he is rebuking how fragile our faith can be. He is rebuking how fragile our faith can be by making a contrast, not a comparison, a contrast. How quickly we give up 
on God in disbelief when our circumstances are way worse than this widow's in that arena. That's what's going on here. This is an unjust judge that she's dealing with. We have a God that is justice personified. Okay? He has a moral center. He is the moral center. Right? Uh, He says, this is a widow who has no clout, no nothing. And Jesus calls you a chosen one of God. Not only is he justice personified, but he has chosen you. You're special to him. You're treasured by him. And yet, in our faith arena, we are quick. We are quick, and he knows this happens to people. We're quick to give up on God. We are quick not to persist, to not do what he wants us to do, and that's believe in him. Our circumstances can be way better than this widow's, and we do not persist. Now, how do you know? How do you know when you have a kind of faith that God wants when he shows up? That's kind of how he ends with this little statement. Will he find faith on the earth? How do you know? I think you go back to the beginning. Do you pray and not give up? In the face of anything, is your safety net, is your, even when it's difficult, even when it seems like he might not do what you want, do you pray and not give up? People who have a faith, you don't have to have a large faith. It's a strong faith, but it can be the size of a mustard seed. It's the object of your faith that is so strong. Do you have a faith? Will he find faith in you? That's what he's looking for. Do you? Do you have this unassailable faith in God's goodness and wisdom and love? He has the right to expect it. We sometimes feel like, based on our circumstances, we have the right to doubt him. Next parable, starting verse 9. So some who were confident in their own confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else Jesus told this parable so again he's not leaving anything to chance Luke wants us to get it and he's talked about this many times but he's addressing again the frequent flyer of of missing the target that still resides to this day that we move from faith in God and we move to having confidence and trying to be good enough and a, a symptom of that is we look down on everybody else Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So speaking of praying and not giving up, he then moves right into this story of two men, both of whom went to the temple to pray. One went home justified, one did not. Which one? Which one? And why? It's pretty simple and straightforward, but super important. One was depending on his own moral righteousness, right? He says, I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm faithful to my wife. And his own religious devotion, right? 
Every dime he gets, he tithes to the temple. He gives a, I mean, every dollar he gets, he gives a dime to the temple, right? He fasts twice a week. That's above and beyond what's required of the typical Jew. He's way in. And, and I want to say something. He was all these things. We have no reason to doubt that, sure enough, he's not lying. He truly is very moral and very religiously devout. And I'll add this. I looked him up. I could find teachings, not just in the New Testament, but from Jesus, exalting all five of those qualities that he is saying he is. These are good things. They're good things. They're Christ-like things. They're faithful things. These are things that honest, sincere followers of Christ would do. That's not the problem. The problem isn't the things or that he's doing them. The problem is he's relying on his doing of them, his growth in those areas as the ticket through which he can enter the kingdom. Right? Back to the beginning. Those who were confident in their own righteousness. So once again, this story is confronting that, but now adding another quality that his people should have. And this word should just be permanently etched into your mind. It should be something you are always moving towards and practicing because Jesus brought brought it up last week in chapter 17. He's brought it up a bunch of times. Paul will continue to do so, and that's the quality of humility. Humility. Who who are you in your own eyes? There's an answer to that question. You might not think about it a lot, but who are you in your own eyes? N.T. Wright says that humility is easy when we stop comparing ourselves to each other and we always compare ourselves to God. It's easy when we stop comparing ourselves to each other and we start comparing ourselves to God. And so we see the humble man, he's throwing himself at the mercy of God because he knows he's a sinner. How about you? Are you depending on being good enough to enter the kingdom? Or are you depending on God's mercy? Because one went home justified in this story. And you want to be associated with that. And how can you know? How can you know? Is there a litmus test that you can kind of do on yourself? Because think about it. If you're thinking you're all that, you might think you're pretty humble. <laughs> right? So how can you know? Here's, here's a litmus test question that you can use to examine yourself. Do you look down on anyone? Anyone? Different politics? Anyone? Compared to you in some area of morality? Anyone? If you look down on anyone, you might not have the kind of humility that you're supposed to have. So, continuing on, verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I find this contrast. Oh, wait, did I miss something? I did, sorry, verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, and this is famous kind of saying of Jesus, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. But why? It's not as famous, but he does tell us why. He says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What? What what does he mean? Well, fortunately, he tells us what he means. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. So, first of all, a little defense of the disciples. They're not children haters, okay? 
I found out from Barclay, they kind of get a bad rap here. They don't like kids. Children's ministers get all offended by these disciples. But that's probably not what's happening. Remember the context. Jesus, his intensity has probably been going up here as they're about to approach Jerusalem. He, a lot of rabbis taught while they walked. These moms would bring their babies to rabbis as they walked sometimes. But, you know, they only have a certain opportunity. So this is more like they're saying he's in the middle of doing something that he considers really important. And that's telling us some stuff. And he's got some, we don't understand it, but he's got some intensity to him. So this is like when you have little kids and your husband or your wife is preoccupied with something really important. You might say to the kids, hey, let's leave mom alone for a bit. She's She's got something on her mind. Or, hey, let's leave dad, give him some space. It's not because you don't love those kids. It's because of the circumstance. And that's what's happening here. But Jesus sees an opportunity to exalt yet another quality that he wants his guys to get. Because if you don't have these qualities he's going through, you're not going to be able to enter and enjoy the kingdom. The very thing I'm going to Jerusalem to give you, I want you to be able to enjoy it and have it. And so he says... The quality here is the ability to receive. This is a skill, receiving, and a lot of you know this. A lot of you really justify not being able to receive, not being able to take a gift, not being able to do that. So Luke's already demonstrated in this chapter that the humility necessary to throw yourself at the mercy of God for the kingdom, you gotta have that. It's your only chance. But even if you do that, and he delivers. If you don't know how to receive, you won't enjoy it. You have to be able to receive it. And life is possible and maintained in a little baby because those little babies receive. They have the ability to receive, right? That's what he's highlighting. Why would he be exalting this? Why is he reminding them, hey, when you get a gift? I mean, didn't, most of our kids, when they have birthday presents, you know, you don't have to instruct them to open it. Take it to your room. Receive it. But as we grow and mature in our faith, I believe the enemy gets in there and starts making sense of us not being, not receiving. So there's two reasons. The first one he's addressing, once again, there's too many replace receiving the kingdom with earning it. Okay? No, don't need to, we've already preached on it in this sermon. We've preached on it in this series many times. Some people do that, but the other one is something that I've sat with many of you in my office on, or you've sat alone with God. There's too many people who refuse to receive because of a false humility. Not humility. The humble receive, but there's a false humility. You believe, you've heard me talk about this before. It's so prevalent among people. I I know, I know the gospel, he can forgive you, but not me. Not after what I've done. That's an inability to receive. And I'll go further than that. It's a false humility because you think you're just getting down lower. I, I just, there's no way. And I don't know what causes us to do this and think that's humility, this self-diminishment. It's not. It's arrogance personified. It's you taking actually a seat above God. And you are dictating something that he has not dictated. And you're insulting him in the most offensive way that I can imagine God being assaulted. You are saying the sacrifice that his beloved son went down there at his request and paid is not as powerful as your sin. Do you realize that? You're looking at him and after all he went through and after all he put his son through, 
You're going to say, that's not powerful enough. That blood spilt is not enough. That death died is not powerful enough for me. You see, it's arrogant. It's not humble. You're being tricked. We have to learn to receive like a little baby. Baby needs it or they'll die. You too. You too. Do you know how to receive? So now... We go to this story. A certain ruler asked him a question. We get right back. After, after this teaching on receiving, just really receiving, he goes right back to the doing. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus plays along. He says, why do you call me? He says this cryptic thing. Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. But then he says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and he said, I'm imagining he's looking at him because he's walking away. So he's looking at him as he's walking away. And he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, I think maybe in a little bit of a panic, who who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. So I've been trying to tell you. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. And then Jesus affirms, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. So there's so much here. Obviously, all of these little things, they they deserve a whole sermon each. But what he's exalting here is the quality of needing to be able to let go. Right? So, yeah, you, you need to learn how to receive. And as part of that, a necessary part of that, if you're going to receive the kingdom, then you have to let go of what else is in your hands. You have to let go of what else is in your heart that the kingdom is trying to give to you. All right? And for this guy, it's money. All right? Not everyone Jesus called did he go for their money. Right? He didn't do that for everyone because it's not money for... It's money for most I'll say that. This is a good example because at least in some season, almost everyone I know that sincerely follows Christ, money is a difficulty, but it doesn't have to be money. It can be anything. It can be your job. It can be some position of influence. It can be um, other people's, you know, favor in your direction. Jesus, Jesus lists even family. It can be family. That's what it would be for me. It's family. Comforts of any kind. Joys of any kind can take the place of the comfort and the joy of the kingdom. So in the negative, he shows it through this guy, right? He can't let go, so he cannot enter the kingdom. And then in the positive, he affirms it with Peter, saying that the disciples who have left it all for the sake of the kingdom, and he unabashedly affirms that, and he is saying to us today, whatever it is for you, he is unabashedly saying, do it. I know it's difficult. I know it's so 
easy to put your faith in horses and chariots and money and bank accounts and, and your family and the people that have your favor or your position or you know, your, your spot in the world. I know it's so easy to put it in something else, your identity, your something. He's saying, I know, I know for you this is difficult, but do it. Let it go. Because the kingdom is better and it's what you need. And it will take care of everything because he will take care of everything. That's what he's saying. I had lunch this week with a friend of mine who is a longtime friend who's in recovery from his, uh, he's an addict, alcohol. It's his chosen drug. And in the years I've known him, he's tried many times and had, you know, some success now and then, but he would always fall. But this time, I haven't really gotten to be with him since. I'm still kind of trying to get my bearings after what happened to us in February as a family with Jake in the hospital. But I finally got back to lunch with this guy. And he, is, he has been sober for well over 100 days. It's different. I can see it's different in his eyes, in his vocabulary. I said, what's different this time? What's different? And it was interesting what he said. He said, you know, it's uh, step three in the 12 steps. You know, it's, it's step three. It's not that I skipped, skipped, you know, just skipped step three in the past. But this time I've really, really done it. What's step three? It's this. If I can find it. There it is. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Have you? I know it's not that you're skipping it, you know, you're not putting in your notes when we mention it in a teaching. You're you're not intellectually disagreeing with it, but have you really? Have you really done this? Because you can't receive the kingdom and enter the kingdom and need your money and need your family even and need your position and need your identity and need your influence or your favor. You can't do this, enter the kingdom and enjoy the kingdom, the greatest thing you'll ever enjoy or experience and need anything other than God or along with God. If this sounds harsh, you know, especially the family thing, it sounds harsh. It's not. It's not harsh. It's just true. And Jesus is just sharing the truth. It only sounds harsh to us because we are so accustomed to sharing the throne of God with something else. We are so skilled at saying, I will depend on God and I will depend on something else. We are skilled and even those we interact with, it's so normal, we don't confront it. It's not even visible to us. So it sounds harsh, but it's not. It's the best news in the world. The coexistence of your loyalty to God and the things of the world in this world is just too normal. So will you be like Peter and the disciples? Or will you be like this rich ruler? So as we close up this chapter, he now turns to them and he says it just as plainly. He is now going to tell them what we're going to Jerusalem for. Here's what is about to happen. I know what you think is going to happen. We've been dealing with this, but I'm going to try again. I'm going to try to tell you what is going to happen. And you'll see they still don't get it. Jesus took the 12 aside. And he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, I know. Kingdom. We've been waiting for this day. And everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Sweet. That is awesome. Because they have an interpretation of that. 
He, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Whoa, 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 what? No, 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 you're kicking out the Gentiles, the Romans. No, he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. They could never get, every time Jesus tells them that he's going to die in Jerusalem, he always adds that he's going to be resurrected. But it's like they can't even get to that good news because they're so shaken. It's so, it's so not right what he's saying. He must be speaking in parables again. One time Luke has them saying, we, they didn't know what he meant by that. What, is, what, is he, what do you think he means? You know, this is like that other parable of the unjust judge. You know, we have to figure out the meaning. They just didn't get it. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. So you and I know what he was talking about. We have the advantage of 2,000 years of having seen this story. We know what he's going to Jerusalem to do. He's going to be crucified and he's going to be raised. That's about to happen. It's going to start next week. He shows up. But that doesn't mean there's no application of this text for us today. And there might still be some of this kingdom stuff that we don't know what he's talking about. Right? That there's, we've, I don't want to say oversimplified it, but we've oversimplified it. And we leave out the part that we already have a picture of what it looks like for me to be a Christian. We already have a picture of what it takes from me to enjoy and enter the kingdom. And so anything he says that might confront what we already have a picture of what that is, like probably he is today, we just don't even hear it. We just say, good sermon, amen, and go to lunch. But that's what hit me here today. That's what hit me, is that we need to examine, not what we know is going on. We need to really look for what, what we don't know. I want to ask our elders and our ministers, they're going to go ahead and move around the balcony and in here, and they'll be out in the foyer if you need a touch this morning. As I tell you, kind of what really hit me on this. So since the last chapter, really, it started last week. I didn't really realize it until I read this chapter this week. But he's describing a certain kind of person now, these last two chapters. Up until now, Luke has had him describing a certain kind of kingdom. He's trying to tell him it's going to be different than what you expect. It's going to be different in nature. It's going to be better, and it's going to be different. It's not going to be an established kingdom on the earth. It's going to be within you and among you. It's going to be in your midst. So he keeps trying to tell him, it's better than that kingdom of David. It's better. It's awesome. It spans boundaries of normal kingdoms. Militaries can't ever take it away from you. It's incredible. But these last two chapters, he's now talking about kingdom citizens. Look, it's a different in nature and how you enjoy it is different too. How you enter into it, how you get to receive it. And so guys, he's telling his guys, it takes a different kind of person. And so this whole chapter has been about the qualities of people that need to be developed in their hearts and in their minds and in their spirits so that they can actually enjoy the kingdom. That it's not just an act academic thing that maybe I believe in this proposal that Jesus is the son of God and I'm going to enjoy the kingdom when I get to heaven. In a way, we do the same thing. We make it a place. It's not a place. It's the kingship of God. It's the rule of God. And it is something that we get to start enjoying now. It just doesn't end when we die. 
this enjoyment of it. And so that's what I see here. Do you get this? Do you get what he's talking about? He's trying to convert you into someone who can enjoy what he's going to start doing in chapter 19. What he's paying for. He's desperate for his disciples, for his work to not be in vain. But they may miss it. They may miss it if they're not this kind of person. And that's what hit me. What kind of person does this chapter tell us we need to be? First of all, a person with faith. You just, just need a mustard seed of it because you've got a big object of that faith that's dependable. You'll be persistent no matter what your circumstances. You cannot enjoy this kingdom without that. Faith is the key that unlocks the enjoyment of the kingdom. Not enough knowledge. Faith in enough of a God. No matter what you face. Yes, it's totally two different categories. The person with humility. It's the one that understands what that sinner understood at the temple and then boldly asked, the big ask, I'm a sinner. That should disqualify him from asking. But he doesn't. Have mercy on me, God. The big ask. Why? Because he has big faith in a big God that has convinced him he can ask for that. It's his only shot anyway. So humble. The person who knows how to receive if you've got the humility to see, you're never going to earn it. But you're going to refuse to open the gift when he delivers it. Then you can't enjoy the kingdom either. Any more than someone with no faith in a big God that has asked for forgiveness and asked for mercy. You have to learn how to let it in. For some of you, it's the, you've heard me say this before, it's the longest journey of your life. It's from right here, an intellectual agreement in the truth of the gospel and it's 12 inches to right here. Whatever that is, it takes. And to take that, the last quality, you have to let go of what hinders that. Whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're hanging on to. What is it? What do you need to let go of? Well, let's let Luke say it. I preached this a few months ago back in Luke 14 where he says, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Pretty pretty all-inclusive maybe it's money for you maybe it's family for you like it is for me maybe it's the favor of the people it's how people see you it's some part of your identity that you got to hang on to you just gotta you're you're draining life from those things and god he's saying you gotta learn to let go if you don't you can't be my disciple do you understand what god's what Jesus is talking about here? Do you understand? Are you like the disciples? This thing have any effect. I'm just, it's too out of bounds. I'm just going to hide behind the smoke screen of I don't know. I'm not sure and just go on with my life. Go on with my life. Here's, here's one of the litmus tests that I think you can ask to know if you're enjoying the kingdom. Do you live the fruits of the spirit? Like are those real experiences of your life? Is joy a defining quality of your existence? Is peace a defining quality of your existence? Love is self-control, a defining quality of your existence. All those fruits of the Spirit. If they are, you may have taken ground in these qualities that allow you to access what Jesus is going to start paying for next week in chapter 19 for you to have. And if they're not, I've got good news. Not a beat down, good news. You can't. You can have more of those things. 
It's available to you. And if we can help you with that or in any way, please come. Please come. Let's stand and let's sing.